0: You're listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. We're continuing our, our study here and uh, through Romans and in this great chapter, maybe one of the greatest, if not the greatest chapters of all the Bible, such wonderful truth uh, here in, in Romans 8. We're going to look at verses 14 through 17, Uh, this morning. Paul is speaking here on the theme of assurance of of salvation. He has started out in verse 1 with, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And he will end the chapter with, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And uh, in between, so much uh, wonderful truth about Uh, assurance of salvation and in these verses verses 14 through 17 Paul wants us to be assured that in Christ we are now sons and daughters of God It's, it's one of the most glorious themes in all of the Bible and we get to look at it this morning Romans 8 verse 14 for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God in order that we may also be glorified with Him. One more prayer. Lord, please help us now to continue to worship You by being attentive, Lord, to what You would have to say to us. We welcome You to say it, Lord, the truth that we need to hear, that we might know You and know You better and to be uh, transformed Lord, to be more like your son, Jesus. And I pray that you would use me today as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. It was J.I. Packer who wrote this, that the revelation to the believer that God is his father is in a sense the climax of, of the Bible. Similarly, Derek Thomas puts it this way, being able to call God, Abba, Father, is the heart of Christianity and our greatest privilege. It it is amazing to think about this if you just pause and think about the big scope here of of what this means. Um, After all, we are talking about the God of the whole universe. The God who created all things, the one to whom we owe all of our existence to, the holy, transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, almighty God. And yet Paul has told us in Romans 1, his message has been that because of our unrighteousness, our sin, that God has set his wrath against us. Romans 3 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous before God. No one. All are facing his judgment and wrath. But the good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for our salvation. That the righteousness that we could not produce in ourselves and of our own good works, that God has provided for us, revealed it to us in Jesus Christ, His Son. Romans 5, 8, and 9 says, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Now, in this salvation, which is by grace through faith in Jesus, it has brought such a radical and uh, eternal changes in our lives. For example, he told us in uh, chapter 6, verse 6, that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He said and went on to say in verse 14 of chapter 6, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're, no, you're not under law but under grace. He says because of this radical change of salvation, we're no longer under the dominion of sin. And now we're free to present our members to God as instruments of righteousness, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Paul tells us how this can happen. When we were saved, he says, we were given His Holy Spirit to live in us. And this Holy Spirit helps us to put to death our sins and to walk like our Father. And when we read those words, we need to pause and think, walk like who? What did He just say? He said, walk like our Father. The change that has happened to us has been so radical that this God of the universe, the God of all creation, the creator of it all, that this God has now, through Jesus Christ, this God has now become our Father. Think of the change in this. That through the Spirit of God living in us, we are now adopted as sons and daughters by our Father. The language is astounding, isn't it? Verse 14, he says, we're sons of God. Verse 15, we've been adopted so that we call God Abba, Father, Verse 16, we're children of God. Verse 17, we're heirs of God, heirs with His Son, Jesus Christ. We've been transferred out of the family of Adam from sin and death and into the family of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit into life and peace, church. Isn't that amazing? This is an important teaching here, and and we we would do well to pause for a moment and think about a couple of truths right from the very outset here, from verse 14, and these are counter-cultural truths. The first truth is that not everyone is a member of God's family. Not everyone. Please hear that. Not everyone is a son and daughter of God. I remember the first time I kind of heard this was at a community Thanksgiving service several years ago. I was a new pastor, but one of the other pastors in that service, we'd we'd all take turns doing parts of it, but one of the pastors led in a prayer of Thanksgiving in in which she began referencing all of these groups of people and even different spiritual groups, and she, she acknowledged, she said that we're all children of God, all a part of the family of God. This idea that there is a universal fatherhood of God and a universal brotherhood of man. Beloved, that's not true. What Paul writes here in verse 14, notice what he says. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He's very clearly distinguishing between those who are led by the Spirit and those who are not, those who have God as their Father and those who are not. And that distinction is critical, isn't it? It's critical in the sense that it has eternal implications. Yes, all of us have God as our Creator, but not all have Him as their Father. One of the clearest examples of this teaching is from Jesus, our Lord, in John chapter 8. It's a great passage, verses 31 through 47. That text is too long for us to read. But essentially, the religious leaders are pushing back on Jesus about some of the truth claims that he was making about himself. And at one point, they push back with these words. This is John 8, 41. They say, we have one Father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. You'd receive me into your life. And then Jesus tells them, verse 44, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. You you understand what he's saying. There's no universal fatherhood of God. Of whom everyone can claim God as being their father. There's no universal brotherhood of, of man. And and what we see today is that our world continues to try to blur this line, blur this distinction. And and they even quote scriptures. Uh, to us in an attempt to justify sinful things and to pretend like we're all a part of this big, giant family with God as our Father? How many times have we heard the Scripture, love your neighbor, to justify all sorts of things in order to prop up this universal idea that we're all just serving the same God and we're all in the same family? Beloved, it is not true. It's not true. There are two families, two fatherhoods, according to Jesus. And Paul is affirming that here in his teaching, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. What does he mean? Those who are outside of Jesus Christ, who are still in the flesh, are not sons and daughters of God. You cannot claim That He is your Father if you are not in Christ, if you are not walking in His Spirit according to His Word. You cannot claim that you are in God's family if His Spirit is not in you. Now, on the flip side, the second truth that we would affirm is that all Christians are members of God's family. All Christians are members. Why would we say that? Well, because that's what the Bible says. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We've been adopted by God's Spirit in this miracle of salvation. This is the glory. This is why the church is distinct from the world, isn't it? It, this what's happened to us this is not of our own doing we don't have anything to boast about today we're not better than any anybody else we didn't have anything to do with this we can hardly even explain what happened to us we just know that something happened to us that in some moment by the grace of God alone that Jesus came to us and we were we don't even know how to we were born again born again, radically changed, born from above, born of the Spirit. That's how Jesus explained it, didn't He, to Nicodemus. He said in John 3, that which was born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit, though, is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, we can't fully comprehend what, what has happened to us, but we know that it has happened to us. And the main way that we know it has happened to us is what Paul is saying here in Romans 8. His Spirit came to live in us. His Spirit came. That's what what He says. Verse 16, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's what this whole paragraph is about, verses 14 through 17. It concerns this witness of the Spirit. In other words, how is it that the Spirit bears witness that we're God's children? How how does this work? That's the theme that's driving this text. And Paul tells us several things, doesn't he? Several ways that the Spirit gives us assurance that we're God's children. First, uh, in verse 14, the Spirit, he says, leads us into holiness. It leads us into hol- He leads us into holiness. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So one of the ways that you know that you're a son or daughter of God is, is that the Spirit of God is leading you. He's leading in your life. But notice the particular kind of leading this, this is because we might be tempted to pull this verse out of context and just put it over here as one little verse, and we might be tempted to think that Paul is speaking about the Spirit leading us uh, in, in what job to take or what decision to make or, or what spouse to marry or in some other kind of, of, of way, but that's not the kind of leadership that Paul's speaking of here, is it? How do we know that? We know that because of the word for. Verse 14 begins with the word for, and so he's referring back to what he said in verse 13. And it says there, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The primary way that the Spirit of God leads us is to be holy. To put to death our sins, verse 13... And to walk like our Heavenly Father. You think about it, it's not rocket science, right? Because the Holy Spirit is holy, isn't He? Amen? He's holy. And, and if you look down in our text, even down to verse 29 of Romans 8, you'll see that God's purpose For our lives, His will is to conform us to the image of His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. And so the kind of leading that Paul is talking about here, leading of the Spirit that he's referring to, is a leading into holiness. Thomas writes, puts it like this, Easy believism. The view that we can confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord without the engagement of our hearts is outlawed here in Romans 8. All true Christians, all true sons and daughters of God are engaged in a self-denying lifestyle involving active participation with the Spirit in killing indwelling sin. That's so well So so when I hear Christians in conversations at times, I hear them speak about how God might be leading them to do this or that, and and at times I'm thinking, that that sounds so wonderful, and it's so pious, and it's so spiritual, and it's so religious, and all those different things. But yet in, in many cases, I don't hear people talking about how the Spirit is leading them in the primary way that the Spirit leads, and that is toward holiness. We don't talk about the Spirit leading us to do that, but it's, it's the primary work of the Spirit to mortify our sin, to live a repentant life, to walk like our Heavenly Father. Instead, we prefer to talk about vague platitudes that, that usually don't translate into the kind of godly character and convictions that Paul is speaking about here. It seems to me, instead of being preoccupied with issues of guidance, we which seems to be the focus of a lot of Christians today, what we need to be focused on is what we know the Spirit to be leading us to do, which is to be holy like our Heavenly Father. Amen? That's what He says. What if we focus more on that? How can can I live, Lord? How can I live in a way that reflects the holiness of my Savior, Jesus Christ? Lord, show me how to deny myself and follow You. God, what, what sin, what pattern of sin in my life do you want me to be thinking about this week and focusing on and fighting on and killing? Lord, lead me in this particular way. Beloved, here's why. Because that's what sons and daughters of God do. That's how we know that we're His children. He's leading us into holiness. Is He leading you to be more holy. A second way the Spirit bears witness that we are His children is that He replaces our fear with freedom. Verse 15, He said, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons Now there's a lot of debate about that verse because you'll notice the spirit first spirit is lowercase s second one is uppercase s, and there's debate about which spirit is which, whether it's the Holy Spirit, the human spirit, just describing uh, all those different things. And I think it might be more helpful for us though just to think about this idea of slavery in chapter uh, that Paul has already talked about. He mentioned two slaveries back in chapter six. Do you remember that? Chapter six, verse twenty. Paul wrote, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That's talking about when you were lost. Verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. He's he's pointing to something similar to which he... uh, uh, Pointed the Galatians to because many of them were, were struggling. They, they remembered how they be, became, before they became Christians, they were, they were in spiritual bondage and they struggled. And the more that they struggled, those chains seemed to be tighter and tighter. And so Paul wrote to them, Galatians 5 1, he says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not go back to your sin, he's telling them. The Spirit of Christ in us, it makes all of the difference in how we approach holiness and and sin and following the Lord. We as Christians are no longer slaves. We are sons and daughters of God. Amen? And you see, it's a fundamental change. Paul uses the word adoption there to describe it. It's only used five times in the whole New Testament. But in three times, here in Romans, F. F. Bruce helps us to understand. The term "adoption," he writes, may have somewhat uh, an artificial sound in our ears, but in the Roman world of the first century, an adopted son was deliberately chosen by his adopted father. To perpetrate, uh, perpetuate his name and estate, it says. He was no longer uh, inferior in status, or no, 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 not inferior in status to a son born in an ordinary course of nature. And he might have well enjoyed the father's affection more fully and reproduced the father's character more worthily. What is is he saying? In in other words, there's been such a remarkable change in our relationship from when we were lost and we saw God as creator and judge, all of those things. Now Now that we've been saved, we see Him as our Father, our Father in heaven. We are not slaves but sons and daughters of God. You remember the story of the prodigal son. How many of you remember that story? Luke 15? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Luke 15, how, which is really the story about two sons, wasn't it? And the younger son left his father, blew his inheritance. You remember, he comes to his senses. He returns to his father. And his father, in what can only be described as this incredible, lavish, amazing grace, he receives his son back with a big party. And you remember the older son's response? I'll I'll remind you of it. The older brother, who represented those who weren't coming to Christ, coming into God's grace, the older brother said to his father, he said, listen to this, he said, look, he said, these many years I have served you. Literally, these many years I have slaved for you. And yet you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Do, Do you hear the difference? Those who have come into the grace of God and His Spirit has come into them are no longer slaves but sons. It's remarkable. How does the Spirit bear witness to this? It's all in how we approach God. We no longer approach God as those who have come as slaves in fear, cowering down to a slave master, hoping that we've done enough this week to earn our way into heaven. No, we've come today as sons and daughters to celebrate God's love for us. Amen? Amen. We've been set free from that slavery of sin and death. Paul says, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery in order to fall back into sin. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. And so a Christian sees it from this vantage point. We obey God's commandments, not because we're slaves, but because He loves us so much. And we love Him. So we gladly give ourselves to Him. Third, the Spirit bears witness that we're His and that He prompts us to call God Father. That's the second part of verse 15. He says, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is the most ordinary term in that uh, language to refer to God as, as simply Dad, Daddy, Father. No Jew would have ever addressed God in that particular way. But if you study the prayers of Jesus, you'll notice that he almost always, when he prayed, called God his Father. Always. It's a language of trust and love, isn't it? Perhaps some of you remember when your babies grew started growing up and developing verbal habits, and we're teaching them, right, some of the first words that we say, uh, Mama and Dada, right, Daddy. What glorious time that is. Sinclair Ferguson describes a friend who adopted a child from another country. And the little girl was a little bit slow in developing relationship and and terminology. But one day she appeared to her dad by uh, by his side and she had her shoe in her hand and she said, Daddy, I need another shoelace. It was the first time she had called him Dad. We think about that moment and the power of that the spirit in us he says the spirit of adoption bears witness that we are his there's been such a remarkable change in our relationship with god that this has taken place the word cry is worth a word study it's a strong word that can mean to cry out or to scream or to call out it's loaded with emotion and intensity i'll tell you other places that that word is used uh, it's used to describe the shriek of the demoniac in Mark chapter five. Remember the guy in the cemetery that was shriek crying out from the cemetery. It was also used of blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter ten, screaming at Jesus as he was passing by to come and give him sight, or even the cry of Jesus on the cross. Beloved, we now have a heavenly Father to run to in our times of need. Amen. That you do not have to fear, but, but to run to Him. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. In just a few verses, Paul's going to speak of times in our lives where we are, we are suffering so much and in such desperation, we don't even know what to pray. But, but the Spirit in us prays for us. We have a Father who hears us when we cry to Him. Think of that prodigal son, when he came to his senses, he remembered his father. His love was kindled in his heart, and he decided to get up and go to him. That's the attitude of the Holy Spirit that it creates in our hearts to assure us that we are no longer the devil's children. It's not like we don't have anywhere else or anybody else to run to. We have a father we can run to, church. That's amazing. Verse 16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. How does He do this? He leads us into holiness. He replaces our fear with freedom. He prompts us to call Him Father. Notice finally, verse 17, The Spirit is the first fruits of our heavenly inheritance. Verse 17 says, And if children, if we're children of God, then we're also heirs. And notice it says, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now that language of first fruits, if you notice down in verse 23, that's where that come into play. Christians are those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit himself, when he comes to live in us, is kind of the first taste that we get of God and our heavenly inheritance, our future with Christ. We think about inheritance being heirs. We might think about several things that that would all be true. We might think about the promise of a heavenly home. Won't that be good someday? Amen? Well, somebody said amen. Or we think about... The joy of a heavenly banquet, setting down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and what that's going to be like in heaven. Revelation talks about it. Or we think about the expectation of a heavenly body that no longer is in the flesh and in sin and deteriorating, but a new and resurrected body. All of those things are wonderful parts of our inheritance that the Scripture talks about. But Paul doesn't talk about that here. He chooses to focus on the greatest blessing of our inheritance. What is that great blessing? That we're heirs of God. God Himself, the greatest blessing God bestows on us is Himself, church. Notice He also said, Think about how the psalmist communicated this Psalm 73 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may feel, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, he says. You notice that Paul says, fellow heirs with Christ. What will Christ inherit? Jesus told us that in his priestly prayer, John 17 He said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ's inheritance is the very glory of God, which is the enjoyment of the presence of God himself. Paul says that because the Spirit lives in you, you are heirs of God church. Think of this. By placing His Spirit in us, we have been given the first fruits of that inheritance. We have been indwelt by the very Spirit of God, Ephesians 1.14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The very Spirit of God God is the portion of His people. And listen, because God is our inheritance, here's why this is important. We can be assured of our salvation. If God lives in you, friend, if the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-good, all-wonderful, almighty God lives in you, there is nothing that can move God. Your salvation is secure in Him. What an amazing thing. Now, there's one qualification here that he mentions, and we'll talk more about it next week, but he says, provided we suffer with Him, with Christ, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Paul kind of gives us a note there to say, you know what, you're heirs of God, but the path to this glory, the path of getting there is going to be through suffering just as Christ suffered. 1 Peter 4.13 says, But rejoice in far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You know, sometimes we look at our lives and we think about the suffering and things that are there, and, and we might think that we... Are, don't, we may cause us to doubt these things are true, but Paul reminds us that our assurance of salvation is not based on whether or not we're free of troubles in this life. It's based on the Spirit of God who lives in you. So the main question today as we close is Does his spirit live in you? Does his spirit live in you? Do you have assurance of salvation this morning? Don't come up with some reasoning that none of us can verify or prove, but look to the Scriptures, because if the Spirit lives in you, here's how you know that. You're going to be putting to death sins, not making excuses for them. If the Spirit lives in you, you're going to be operating not out of a fear of God, but in freedom of knowing that God is your Father and you're His son and daughter. Your instincts are going to be not to to, to run away from Him, but to run to Him, to cry, Abba, Father. If the Holy Spirit is in you, bearing witness in you, you're, you're going to know something of the first fruits of God because He lives in you. Are these things true of you? If not, what do you do? You cry out to God, don't you? And here's the amazing thing about our God. Over and over again, you see people crying out to him in the Bible. And he's the kind of God who answers, doesn't he? If you confess... Your sin to him and trust his son Jesus and his cross and resurrection to save you. He will save you. Cry out to him. Invite his spirit. Plead for his spirit to come into your life and give you life. Lord, thank you for your word today. We ask that you would please either give us even greater assurance that we are yours. Or, Lord, you would convict us that we might be clear and convicted and turn from our sin and turn to Christ as our Savior and Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast.